chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16. We'll begin reading from chapter 2, verse 11, and we'll read through verse 22. This is God's holy word. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May we go to our God and ask for the Lord's blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you have given us that which is right and true. Father, you have called us from our old sinful ways that we might follow Jesus Christ, that we might put off like an old garment, put off the old ways, that we would put on our Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, for his perfect righteousness that he gives to us, that we receive by faith. Father, we pray that even as we struggle through this life, struggle through relationships, struggle through the disappointments of life, Father, remind us that you have called us to peace that you have called us to a new and a living way. Father, we pray that we would exalt our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that the gospel would go forth this day, that your people would embrace it, knowing that he is our only hope for peace with you. He is our only hope for eternal life. And we pray, Father, that your son, Jesus, would be exalted, and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The world does not understand the concept of peace. If you ask someone, what is peace? The best they can come up with is this idea of, well, when there's no war, then that's peace. We think about the description about a nation. We think about actions that a nation would take. So uh, a A military base would have certain procedures that they would follow during times of war. And during times of peace, uh, they might be a little more relaxed. 
And there we even see this matter regarding peace and war. Well, at best, we think about how peace then, from a national perspective, is when the nation is not at war. And when we think about the term in armistice, a ceasefire, this very concept is that this is the best that nations can hope to attain. That the concept of true peace, the true peace that only God gives, the true peace that is Jesus Christ, that they know nothing about outside of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Here, it goes back to the origins. It goes back to Genesis 3. It goes back to the fall of man. That with rebellion, when sin entered the world, that there was enmity between God and man. And also that there was enmity between man and man. Between uh, the man and the woman, that there would be enmity. And between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, there would be enmity. And that throughout history, we've seen that there's been enmity. And, and at various times, there have been peace talks. Right? Hey, there's going to the, be peace in the Middle East. You know when peace in the Middle East will come? When Jesus returns. That's when it will come. And for the near term, we have the spread of the gospel, which brings uh, a, a sense, a taste of this peace. But true peace comes when the Prince of Peace returns. And establishes peace. Here. Think about your own life. Is it the case. That you look around you. Is there peace. In your life. Are you at peace with God. And how. Are you at peace with God. We ought to realize. That Jesus alone. Is the one who is our peace. He is the one who establishes our peace with God. It's not something that you and I have done or accomplished, that we accomplish or we establish peace with God. Jesus alone does that work. Think also about your relationships. For those in your life, those who are supposed to love you and those whom you are supposed to love. That is there peace in those relationships? And we ask, well, is it the case that there's war in our own hearts? That we desire, we're told, that we, we lust and we desire, but we do not have. And we do not have because we do not ask. We ask with wrong motives. And there, there we see that there's the selfishness, there's the greed, there's the pride that comes in. That these are the things that rob us of that true peace. Here, as we look at the book of Ephesians, that the Apostle Paul is presenting our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, in all his glory. And he speaks about God's plan for his beloved bride, the church. And we're getting more of a glimpse, more of a glimpse of God's plan for the church, even as he talks about one body in our passage, about this one body. <clears throat> so the truth that we see in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, that Christ alone is your peace because he makes peace between men and reconciles his church to God. <clears throat> Christ alone is your peace because he makes peace between men and reconciles his church to God. <clears throat> we'll look at this in three points. The first is Christ is your peace. Second, Christ makes peace between men. Third, Christ makes peace between men and God. 
So this first point, Christ is your peace, in the first part of verse 14. For he himself is our peace. The very mention of this he himself, whenever the pronoun is used in the Greek, that's with emphasis right here. You think about our usage of language, where we have verbs, right? But the verbs don't have distinct endings. Other, other languages, for example, Latin, Spanish, right? You, you use a verb, and the verb ends or begins in a certain way, and from that you know who you're talking about. And there's no, use, there's no need to use a pronoun except for emphasis. And here we have the pronoun used, that Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace. In Ephesians chapter 2 earlier, uh, 2, 1 through 10, we have the description of God's work of salvation in the individual. That verses 1 to 3 address the matter of who we were before Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That nothing good came from that. That here we walked according to the ways of the world, the passions of the flesh, and we lived by those passions. And the end result was death. But God, being rich in mercy, we're told, that he saved us, not because of any righteous thing we've done. And that here we look at God's plan is that he would save a people for himself. And then Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, so 2, 1 through 10 speaks about salvation regarding the individual, God's work in an individual. <clears throat> and then here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, speaking about the description of salvation corporately regarding the church, the body of Christ. In verses 11 through 13 that we covered last week, it speaks about your pre-Christian past and the gravity of sin, of darkness, and despair. Then in today's passage, we're told it's the centerpiece where Jesus' death is what establishes peace for us as his people. That three times it's mentioned This idea of two become one. Two become one. That the two groups, Jew and Gentile, have become one. So no longer are there two groups. There is one group. That Jesus establishes a new humanity. That's that's the concept of his church. Here, we ought to understand that there there are many false types of peace. People... Oftentimes, in their workplace, peace is making it to retirement, right? Working 30, 40 years in your life and making it to retirement so you can go fishing every day of the week. It's having the picture, having the picture on the wall that you have at your workplace of that uh, that remote uh, tropical island, right? Oh. Difficult things come, think about that picture in vacation. False types of peace might be burying ourselves in our work, in our occupation, working many hours, becoming a workaholic. Perhaps it might be staying busy with your children or grandchildren. It might be spending and enjoying money, becoming a foodie. It might be, I think it was a group... Rolling Stones sang about this. Was it Mother's Little Helper? Right? It was, was it the yellow, little yellow pill? And I'm not saying any of these things necessarily are wrong in themselves to enjoy money, enjoy spending it, enjoy food. 
But is that a substitute for true peace? Here, the very presentation that he himself is our peace. Nothing can fill that void. Nothing can establish peace if we lack it. The enjoyment of family and friends and homes and food, these things aren't bad. But are they trying to fill a space that only Jesus can fill? And I ask you, is Jesus your peace? To have him is to have everything. And to lack him is to have nothing at all. Ultimately, is Jesus your peace? So this is the first point. Christ is your peace. Second, Christ makes peace between men. We have that in the second half of verse 14 and also verse 15. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Here, I mentioned that this statement about two becoming one, this is very important, very important, central to this passage, Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. Central to it because he keeps on mentioning it. The two become one, three times. Verses 14, 15, and then again in 16. And this new body is his bride, the church. He's creating a new humanity. In 1 Corinthians 10, was it verse 32? He says, the Apostle Paul says, and we have no other principle, right? So, uh, Jew, Gentile, or the church of God. And we ask, well, wait a minute. I, I thought we were Gentiles. But why, why, is he, why does he have three categories here? There's Jew, Gentile, and the church of God. I remember as a little junior high kid in church that uh, there was that question that was asked. What is a Gentile? And later did I realize it's not, simp- it's not so simple of a question. On one hand, we are Gentiles. On the other hand, we're not Gentiles. Well, otherwise, why would the Apostle Paul mention Jews, Gentiles, and the Church of God? You look at the various usage of the term Gentiles, right? So on one hand, Gentiles are distinction from Jews. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. But then in other passages, the Apostle Paul uses Gentile synonymously with someone who's an unbeliever. Right? Ephesians 4, living as the Gentiles live. And here we ought to understand that there is a new humanity that is created. The church. The church being created. And here we have several descriptions about how Christ makes peace between men. The mention of, in verse 14, he has made both one as broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We ought to think in this situation about the Jewish temple, which no longer exists. That the Gentiles were those who were outside. It was the court of the Gentiles and Uh, If we look at Jesus' life and the Gospels, uh, there was that one scene where where Jesus, you know, weaves together this this whip 
and he drives all of the, the merchants and the money changers out of that area, and that area would have been the court of the Gentiles. They were selling animals and exchanging money in the court of the Gentiles. And here we have a quote for the temple that no longer exists. There's only, was it one wall, the western or the wailing wall that remains? Uh, but when the temple was there, it was apparently this sign that said, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. This was the warning, meaning Gentiles, you stay out of this temple. You realize this was significant because in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, verses 29 to 30, one of the things that got the Jews really upset about the Apostle Paul, one who was once a Pharisee of Pharisees, who became a Christian, what got them really upset, they made these false accusations about him that the Apostle Paul brought this man, he was an Ephesian named Trophimus, that he brought him into the temple. That was the accusation. Hey, this man, look what he's done. He's bringing a Gentile into the temple. And, and this, this was how... Uh, you think about the case where uh, there was a riot and Paul had to be separated. They had to figure out what was going on and, and the escalation where he appealed to Caesar. All, all that had to do with this, apparently, this situation in Acts chapter 21. Hey, there's this man, Paul, who was once a Jew and he brought an, a, a Gentile into the temple, which apparently didn't happen. There's no coincidence that the Jewish temple was destroyed. It's destroyed by the hands of the Romans. But here, the reason why it was destroyed is by the will of God. Because there's no longer a purpose for that temple. Here Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. He was talking about himself. He is that temple. The temple was merely pointing ahead to Jesus. The temple... The Jewish temple serves no purpose anymore with the coming of Christ. Here we have also this description, the abolishing, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Here we go back to this mention about the ceremonial laws. <clears throat> These were the laws in the Old Testament about the blood of bulls and goats, about clothing. We're not to wear, or the Jews weren't to wear clothing woven by with two different kinds of material. <clears throat> uh, regarding matters of food, that uh, pork, shellfish, such things, they weren't to be eaten. Talk about the, the split hoof and chewing the cud, right? The animal had, uh, it had to have a split hoof and it had to chew the cud. And these were the laws that made distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. But Jesus put an end to all those. Hebrews chapter 8, we have this account in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Continuing in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Here we spoke earlier from our 
confession regarding this threefold distinction of the law. That the ceremonial law <clears throat> was abrogated by our Lord Jesus Christ. It merely pointed ahead to the work that Jesus would do. His, his one offering of himself, right? The bulls and the goats and the blood that was shed was a reminder that blood needed to be shed in order for there to be the remission of sins. And the fact that, uh, Hebrews 10, the fact that these sacrifices continued repeatedly, it, it pointed out the very fact that they weren't effective to do what they were supposed to do. Jesus would come, that one high priest who would lay down his own life. We have then also the judicial laws. They expired with the nation of Israel. So Leviticus 19, verse, verse 36 speaks about having an honest ephah and, and an honest hin. These were units of measures, where, where it uh, weights or volumes. And the, the general equity of that law is applied today in that you go to a gas station, and you, there's a gas pump there, and there'll be a, a seal on that gas pump. I remember as a kid, <clears throat> there was a... Uh, there was a young man in my school. His father was the state sealer in California. And his name, his last name, Van Wassenhove, was there on every seal. You go to the gas pump, you saw his, you saw his family name because his, his dad put the seal on it. And this is the understanding that, hey, if you, if you go to Cup Foods and you expect to buy a, a two pounds of apples, that it better be two pounds. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be less because there's the general equity. This is about honesty. I think also these judicial laws were there and they further explained the moral law. For example, when you look at the matter of, of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, there's other things regarding purity that addresses. So incest is not permitted. Premarital sex is not permitted. Sex outside of a covenant. Homosexuality is not permitted. Prostitution. You see, the, the judicial laws, they continue... Uh, regarding those applications. And the Ten Commandments were merely a summary. And on one hand, the judicial laws explained to Israel how they ought to live. And for the most part, we don't repeat them exactly as they are in every nation. But they do reveal God's holy character. The moral law is always in force. Because it's based on God's holy character. And it is unchanged. Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And then Romans 7.12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So you ask, why was there this law of hostility? <clears throat> Here, the hostility that the ceremonial law created. You ask yourself, well, why did God do that? Well, we have to answer first that God's design for the ceremonial law was not that it would produce hostility between Jew and Gentile. That wasn't his design. God's design was to have a holy nation. That there ought to be a distinction. There ought to be a separation. <clears throat> but the separation uh, was not to produce uh, pride and hostility between people. The Jews were supposed to be a light to the nations, that salvation might extend to the ends of the earth. 
It was rather man's sinful response to these differences, to these distinctions that led to hostility. It was how the Jew treated the Gentile and viewed him. That they looked at the Gentiles and they had nicknames and one of the ones that they used was dogs. They called them Gentile dogs. It should not have happened. It should not have happened. And you think about how we as Christians today, is that the way that we should be viewing non-Christians? The answer is no. Otherwise, we're walking into the exact same trap that the Jews fell into. Because God has called us, the church, to be a light to the nations that salvation might extend to the ends of the earth. So they were supposed to, we are supposed to make the gospel attractive. That we should desire their good, we should desire their salvation. <clears throat> Here, this is something that often comes up. Not just Jew and Gentile, but any, dis- any difference, any distinction between men. It's so easy to allow those differences to divide us. First, it begins with a suspicious glance, a suspicious assumption. Look at that person's hair. Their hair has a different texture than mine. Or maybe for me, that person has a lot more hair than I do. Right? I like their hair color better than mine. My, my hair color is changing and I can't control it. Whatever distinctions there are, I'll point out a different one. It's a simple one. I think back to the book of Judges. <clears throat> Judges chapter 12. You have the, the men of Gilead and the men of Ephraim. And there was apparently some kind of animosity. There was a battle. Was it they were involved? Hey, you didn't invite us or whatever. And then it became, came down to the Shibboleth or the Sibboleth. You remember this story? Where, where hey, he said, hey, are you, that, are you an Ephraimite? No, no, I'm not. Say Shibboleth. Sibboleth. Ah, you see, you can't say it. And here, you different groups. It happens also, right? It, apparently, there's some American Indian languages where, as, a, as an infant, they can hear a distinction of sound. But after the age of one, we can no longer hear the distinction of sound in their pronunciation. Though any of these differences can divide people. You realize that in heaven, these differences will still be there. There'll be different languages in heaven. There'll be different people groups in heaven, but they're not going to divide us. You ask, shouldn't that be true today? Shouldn't that be true right now? Here, we think about how these distinctions, these distinctions ought to be subordinate to our new identity in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Any distinctions. Any identities. Any loyalties that come before your identity in Jesus Christ. That is defined as an idol. You realize that? If you have any identity, if you have any loyalties, if you make your decisions based on anything before your identity in Christ, that's really an idol in your life. Simply put. Simply put. Now here, perhaps you're, you're wondering. <clears throat> you're wondering this question. Well, Jesus came 
and he abrogated the ceremonial law to, to unite Jew and Gentile. But something is still missing. The ceremonial law is done away with it, is done away with. But what about all the things that happened throughout history between the Jews and the Gentiles, between these various people groups? Abolishing the ceremonial law doesn't seem to fix that. The answer is, you're right. There has to be peace vertically with God before there can be peace horizontally with men. There's something else that needs to happen. And we see that in verse 16. So we're moving on to the third point. Christ makes peace between men and God. Christ makes peace between men and God, verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. <clears throat> Here, we look at root causes. The unregenerate man lacks peace within himself. And because of that, it's manifested in war with man. Because the unregenerate person doesn't have peace within, they're looking to take. They're looking to, uh, to put himself superior to someone else. And the result is war with their fellow man. So what is the cause? What is this cause of this lack of peace within himself? The root cause is the lack of peace with God. If we're dealing with symptoms, it's like a doctor who only treats symptoms. Oh, you got a stomach ache, we can treat that. Well, what if that's in a, don't be, don't be spooked, what if that stomach ache is actually stomach cancer, right? Hey, giving them an antacid or giving them a painkiller, that's not going to fix it. And so also, man's problem. We could try to treat all the symptoms of his lack of peace. It's only the good news of the gospel that addresses the root problem. It addresses the root problem of man's lack of peace with God. Because there's enmity with God, because there's hostility to God, the fool says in his heart there is no God. He denies God's existence. And because of that enmity, there's going to be internal enmity. There's no peace with himself, right? There's no peace with himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. You ask, why is there enmity between man and wife? He who loves his wife loves himself. Maybe that first question has to be asked. Are you loving yourself even? There's enmity within oneself. Here, Jesus makes peace between men by first dealing with your enmity with God. He reconciles the world to himself, not counting man's trespasses against him. Do you desire to have peace within? Do you desire, and you see others where they, they post all these beautiful pictures of their family and their grandkids and their social circles, right? And, and you ask yourself, hey, wait a minute, are these... Eh, are they fabricating? It, it's called the social media, right? It's called the, the Facebook image, right? Well, what does that amount to if you lack peace? It amounts to absolutely nothing. And we're told that Jesus establishes this peace. He reconciles men to God through the cross. Jesus doesn't reconcile people to God 
by divinely giving the father a horrible case of amnesia. Hey, God, Father, let me just give you amnesia so you won't think about why there's enmity between you and man. No. He deals with the enmity by the cross. Think about why the cross? <clears throat> we think about what we read earlier in Psalm 85. Psalm 85. Let me hear what the Lord, what, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Isn't this a description of the good news of the gospel, our Lord Jesus Christ? That when he died on the cross, there was righteousness and peace that kissed each other. That steadfast love, God's covenant faithfulness, that had met with truth. That here we have justice and truth. We have God's loving kindness and his mercy and your peace united. It could only come through that means. The world offers all kinds of, of fabricated, phony forms of peace. Jesus alone is the one who gives you true peace. He gives you peace with God by his perfect work. And so that you may have peace within. Having peace within, you may have peace with your fellow man. So we, we think through all the different groups. What about these histories? What, what about what happened in the past? We ask, how does that Christian from that nation that shares a border with a Christian from this nation, how do they look upon each other and say, you know what? We can, we can stand hand in hand, even here on earth, in unity. As we look forward to our unity in heaven, we'll stand worshiping in heaven eternally. And the answer is, the reason why the Christian from nation A, that's at war with nation B, those two Christians can have fellowship with one another, is because they're saying, hey, listen, it's not just this ceremonial law because neither of them may be Jew or Gentile. What they're saying is, no, this brother, whatever sins he's committed, he's repented of them. And this idea of whatever sins his grandparents committed, his great-grandparents committed, ultimately they're all paid for by Jesus Christ. Whatever claim I have on him, aren't I drawing from that same fountain of grace? Who is Jesus Christ? I don't have any claim on that guy because I have to deal with my own debts. But you see, all the debts have been paid for by this one man, Jesus Christ. He is the one who creates this new humanity. He creates this body called the church. But you ask, is the good news of the gospel, is that sufficient is that sufficient to heal the damage that's been done? Better be. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You realize that God's power is manifested in the gospel. 
that old animosities, old hatreds can be eliminated. They can be forgiven. We can be healed of those. The world wants to bring in the past. Hey, let me tell you about all these things that happened. These are the reasons why you ought to hate your brother of this different group. These are the reasons why you shouldn't let those things go away. You shouldn't forget about them. What we see here is a new humanity that our Lord Jesus has created. I don't know how we're going to get to unity in Christ if we're constantly talking about what you did to me, what I did to you, and unless we're actually dealing with those things and saying, hey, listen, these, these matters are addressed and they're forgiven. But to constantly raise them and never get past it, this is not the role of the church, right? We're just saying, hey, listen, we have true unity in Christ. He is the one who establishes that unity. He is the one who paid all the debts. Hey, you have a debt to me. Hey, that debt has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Just like your debt has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. Here, we ought to think about this hostility then. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified by faith. You now have peace with God. And it's the only way that you can have peace. Nothing you do, no matter how hard you work, no no matter how many acts of penance that you do, it cannot pay for your sins. It's only by Jesus alone that you can have peace with God. And it comes by faith in our Lord Jesus. You realize, we could say, I will work 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for the rest of my life. You can't do that because you have to sleep. But that debt cannot be paid off. That's, that's what eternity in hell is. Eternity of continuing to pay. But what we have here is that God freely offers you peace with Him. He freely offers you peace within. He freely offers you peace with your fellow man. And it comes by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. He commands that we would embrace it. That we would believe it. That we would trust in Him. That He would see that He is making us anew. He's created a new humanity. And that this is called Christ's church. And this is why various groups of people can have unity. Because we're seeing the thing that unites us is not the outward things. It's not the material things. Right? It's actually Jesus Christ. That's what unites us. Because He is our hope. He is our truest identity, our greatest identity. May you find your true hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord.